Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, November 9th, 2019, is an Anne and Andrew Tisch Supreme Court Lecture. In this talk, Eddie Glaw Jr., Akil Ridamar, and Marsha Coyle discuss the history and future legal protections for religious freedom in the United States. Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be back with all of you at this wonderful New York Historical Society. You know, there's this old saying that you shouldn't talk religion and politics at the dinner table. But fortunately, it's breakfast time in New York. (laughs) And unfortunately, you really can't separate the two anymore. But uh, it's a huge topic, and I thought the best way to sort of give you an overview of what's going on is to start at the very beginning. And I'm going to ask Akil to take us back and tell us what does the Constitution actually say about religion? So here's one thing that the original Constitution doesn't say. It doesn't say God. Um, And the Declaration of Independence has, uh, of course, references to um, nature and nature's God, to the supreme judge of the universe. Um, it, It talks about all men being created equal by a creator. All the state constitutions have references to the, uh, the divine, um, and that was noticed. Um, uh, someone, I think, um, asked um, Hamilton you know, why yeah, it was omitted. He said, we forgot it. Um, uh, so um, here's another thing the original Constitution does say, and it's unique. Um, it says that there shall be no religious test for a federal office holding, and that's first in the world at the time that it says that. Um, virtually every state, uh, uh, I think 11 states, have uh, um, religious qualifications in the constitu- their state constitutions themselves. Only one state doesn't have a religious qualification. Um, it's um, uh, Virginia, and that's by statute, um, the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom, uh, championed by Jefferson and, and Madison in 1785. So, even before the First Amendment comes along, you see, the Constitution is actually breaking certain new ground, saying this is going to be a project open to people of all faiths and, and of no faith in particular. And, and some folks oppose the Constitution because you could have um, an American pope as president, American-born pope. That's, I'm not making up that, that, that critique. Um, now, the framers famously did forget something, which is a Bill of Rights, and the omission was so notable because most state constitutions had written Bills of Rights. Um, And so in the ratification process, the first thing that ordinary people say when they see the document is, dudes, you forgot the rights, and they uh, insist uh, really, um, in state after state, as a condition of ratification, that a Bill of Rights needs to um, uh, ensue uh, post haste, and the amendment that becomes, and if, and if James Madison doesn't push this, um, oh, well, first of all, he's not going to get the Constitution. If he doesn't pivot in Virginia and say, okay, we'll consider a Bill of Rights in the ratification process, maybe the Constitution goes down. Right. And then he's got to get elected 
um, to Congress, and if he doesn't promise his constituents, many of whom believe in religious freedom, and he has some credibility with them because of the Bill of Religious Freedom, if he doesn't promise he's gonna push a Bill of Rights, oh, he's not gonna get elected. And then if he doesn't keep his promise, oh, he's not gonna get reelected because it's every two years. So there is pressure for him to do this, and he pushes through a series of amendments, the third of which, there are 12 originally in the first Congress, and our First Amendment is actually the third. The first two don't get ratified initially. Um, and, um, and it famously, I mean, you might think it's all about church and state and religious freedom, actually not so much. Let me remind you what its words say. Congress shall make no law um, uh, uh, respecting an establishment of religion or abridging the free, uh, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So just a few quick things and then we, I'll, I'll shut up. No. It doesn't apply to the states and localities. Right. It applies only against the federal government, only against Congress. And the language is particularly notable. Congress shall make no law respecting, that is, no law an establishment of religion. Today we think that's anti-establishment. It's actually not quite. It's indifferent on the establishment issue. If a state has um, an established church, Congress can't disestablish that church because that would be a law respecting, a law on the topic of, a law in regards to an establishment of religion. And six states have established churches at the time, at least you know, three up in New England, congregational and some um, Anglican establishments down south. So the original First Amendment didn't say as much about ch church and state law as it said something about federalism. This is a vast continent. There's a lot of religious diversity. You got Congregationalists up north and Anglicans um, down south, and you got um, uh, uh, Quakers in the middle, and you got um, Baptists here and Catholic enclaves there. Let's say um, uh, Maryland um, and federal government butt out. Um, let local option. Let states decide what they want to do because there's no national, no continental consensus. The original First Amendment is the constitutionalization of what in Europe, after centuries of religious warfare, um, came to be um, basically the Peace of Augsburg of 1555 and the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, Curious Regio, A.S. Religio, the religion of the principality will be the, uh, the, the prince will be the religion of the principality. No imperial, no imperial wide policy at all. We're going to leave it up to local options. Certain duchies will be Catholic, others will be Protestant. If you don't like it, move. That's actually, believe it or not, the original compromise on religion. So, can you tell us, Eddie, a little bit about uh, how uh, religion was was viewed at the times, and or or how it has evolved? No. no okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I think this is a really fascinating story. Uh, in a number of different ways. Um, we have to see uh, the, the backdrop of this debate having everything to do with, in some ways, uh, what was going on in Europe, the role of the Church of England, and how uh, folks are trying to hold off what is seen as the tyranny of the Church of England. Uh, we have to see the kind of variety across the colonies, the differences between, say, what's happening in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, what's happening in Rhode Island with Roger Williams. Uh, just all you need to do is go to a Brown graduation, and you can see the enduring legacy of the chaos of the Baptist.
Baptist in, in Rhode Island, as opposed to the Presbyterians at Princeton. Um, <laughs> it's really different. Um, um, and so, and, as, and, and the differences that are what we see in the Carolinas and what we saw in, in, in Virginia and what we definitely saw see in, in Georgia and, 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 and what would become the American South. Um, in some ways, we tell the story of, of, American, uh, of Christianity in America in kind of three ways. And here I'm following uh, a historian out of Amherst College, David W. Wills, and we could tell the story in at least you know, organized along three axes. One would be a story of religious pluralism, right, where we get this kind of account where let, let, um, let's not intervene in the plurality of religious expression in the United States. And it's one of the ways in which we kind of single ourselves out. Uh, another has to do with the kind of holy commonwealth that, that we are, in fact, a Christian nation, that the backdrop of what we mean by religion is actually Judeo-Christian. Right, and that there's still a presumption of the belief in God that even informs the way in which we're talking about uh, religion's role in American public life. And then the third uh, is, is in some ways around religion and race, where religious freedom becomes an interesting sorts of ways, uh, or religious liberty becomes an interesting sorts of ways, a way of giving voice to a particular notion of whiteness that undergirds right, American life. Uh, and we can tell the story of Christianity in the United States and its role in our public life along these three different axes, and you get very different accounts. I should say, that the question of pluralism kind of emerges in a very distinct and powerful way after the Great Awakenings and Second Great Awakenings, mm-hmm. right? Where it's not just simply, you know, Anglicans. It's not just simply Quakers and Bap- But you see Methodist and Baptist and, and the way in which this kind of revivalist, uh, I, you know, um, impulse begins to impact uh, the landscape and how folks are trying to push up against the domination of or the hegemony of, of, of an Anglican orientation in certain regions or congregationalist orientation in others. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of a landscape that is um, uh, uh, occupied by a number of different Protestant commitments and then you have those Catholics in there and then, and then God forbid those Jews show up. And so this plurality has uh, an impact on the very ways in which uh, religion is hailed in the public in the public arena, if that makes sense. So I think um, um, that kind, we can tell that story, uh, and we have told that story in a particular sort of way, where we um, emphasize the value of of America's commitment to religious pluralism, but oftentimes we uh, obscure uh, this desire to maintain the hegemony of a certain kind of Christian kind of view. And let me just say, it's not just simply Christian. Most often, it's Protestant, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> and the way that then uh, serves as a proxy for white, right? And who can gain access to whiteness? So uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, there are ways in which uh, uh, Catholic immigrants and Jewish immigrants occupy or deploy religious freedom as a way of entree into whiteness. That becomes an interesting mm. story for us to tell. So I hope we can get into this as that debate plays, as we go through the debates around prayer and school and the like. Is that helpful or that was that just confused? That was confusing? Okay. <laughs> so uh, at some point, 
the First Amendment is going to be applied to the states. Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how that happened and why that happened. So Eddie has begun to tell you uh, a story about um, uh, religion culturally. He's brought race in. For those of you who are especially concerned today about the religious right, I want to remind you that um, before there was a powerful religious right in, uh, let's say, Reagan's America, long before, there was a very powerful religious left. Um, and it um, uh, begins um, uh, in the 1820s and 30s and even before that, um, um, it, actually at the founding period. So the Quakers are opposed to slavery, right. you see. Um, and, um, and the world's, for, the, the ancients, had an idea of manumission, emancipation, freeing individual slaves. You see it in the Bible. Um, you see it in Ben-Hur. You see it in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. They had slavery, <laughs> but they also had individual emancipations. But they didn't have a concept of ending slavery everywhere, always. The Quakers had that. The, first, the world's first anti-slavery society begins in 1775 in, in Philadelphia. And right. Pennsylvania gets rid of slavery. Initially, a statute provided for gradual abolition of slavery in 1780. And that's the Quakers. And then later, religious groups are going to come along in 18-teens, 20s, 30s. They're going to be women in these groups. They're not allowed to vote, but they can go to church. Um, they're going to be um, um, blacks, very prominently involved. And their initial claim, this is the religious left, is slavery is wrong. It's, and they, it's not a political claim. It's sin. Um, it's separation from God. You are actually, you the master are in bondage to uh, slavery itself, and you have to free yourself from sin, from slavery, by freeing your slaves one by one. Um, this is manumission. It's not particularly political to begin with. It's very much about you and your soul. These annoying people knock on your door, you know, uh, uh, when you want to watch the ball game, and, and you go downstairs and they say, Have you thought about your soul recently? And you say, well, Actually, it's the seventh inning. And, you know, uh, so, so that, they, they, they go way back and they are the ones who are going to be initially crusading. They will become increasingly political, um, and they will be eventually the backbone of the Republican Party of the 1850s and 1860s, which will give us the 13th Amendment and abolishing slavery everywhere, not just freeing slaves, ending slavery everywhere immediately without compensation, a 14th Amendment promising equality, civil equality, and, and civil rights to, to all, and the 15th Amendment, equal voting rights for blacks. And the 14th Amendment is the key here, because the 14th Amendment takes those words that I mentioned before and flips them. What were the words I mentioned before? Congress shall make no law which shall abridge the free speech, free press, blah, blah, blah. Now, the 14th Amendment is going to say no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge certain fundamental rights. Shall make no law abridge. It's the same words as the First Amendment, but now applying to states and localities. And by fundamental rights, oh, the framers of the 14th Amendment most definitely mean rights of expression and rights of religion. 
Okay, they're borrowing from the First Amendment, which talks about expression um, and religion. And now they're saying states and localities can't mess with that. And here's why, two reasons. You know, one, um, um, and they're related. States in the antebellum period had really um, massively suppressed speech in general and religious speech in mm. particular. It is a capital offense in antebellum North Carolina, I'm not making it up, um, capital offense, to criticize slavery even in the pulpit, and the Reverend Daniel Wirth is actually prosecuted right. for giving actually an anti-slavery sermon in North Carolina. Um, and uh, so the South is trying to clamp down on religious expression, which is partly anti-slavery expression. Black churches, but also whites who criticize slavery on religious grounds. What is the Republican Party slogan? They form in 1856 as a national presidential party. What's their slogan there? Make America great again. Their hope and change or something. Their slogan, because their candidate is a guy named John C. Fremont, is free speech, free press, free soil, free labor, free men, free mont. Okay, so that's what they're all about is free speech, free press, and free exercise of religion. What's the most important book of the entire period that actually sells more copies than anything in the century other than the Bible? It's written by a woman, um, and it's religious and political uh, and literary, and it's powerfully anti-slavery. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe from a very prominent preacher family, the Beechers, okay? Yep. And that's what they're thinking about at the time of the 14th Amendment, religious expression, religious freedom, um, and um, uh, uh, expression more generally. And now it's supposed to apply against states and localities. No state, you know, shall make or, or county or city, um, which are parts of states, shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge these fundamental freedoms. That was just brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, Sid. Okay. Kind. So we're going to jump ahead because, you know, there's, there's so much going on. But... Um, the amendment now applies to the states. and states In theory, but the courts aren't. Exactly. Okay, that's where we're going to move next. Right. Uh, what is happening, you know, with the courts? Um, it applies to the states. States are making laws. Okay. Uh, do you want to start with, say, the Warren Court? Uh, slightly before the Warren Court. So just um, First Amendment says... Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. What does Congress do within a decade? It abridges freedom of speech. The Sedition Act and courts say, fine by us. Um, and the 14th Amendment promises racial equality along with full freedom. And the courts say, fine by, you know, and segregation emerges and the courts say, fine by us, Plessy versus Ferguson. There continues to be lots of repression and for the longest time, the courts say, fine by us. You know, this 14th Amendment that you thought about was about black equality and civil rights. It's actually about the rights of corporations, says the court, these railroad lawyers on, on the court. So it's not really until the 20th century that the court finally says, oh, actually it says free speech. You know, maybe we should do free speech. Oh, it says free exercise. Oh, it says no state shall. So this is going to be a 20th century story of courts eventually um, reading the Constitution, and and it begins really slightly before the Warren Court um, in the 1930s um, with some cases saying, ah, the 14th Amendment really is about um, free speech and 
free exercise applying against the states. So, so that's going to begin the very first time the Supreme Court ever strikes down a law violating free expression, 1930, Near versus Minnesota and um, Stromberg versus California. And then shortly thereafter, in the, in the mid-30s, there's a case called Cantwell uh, versus Connecticut. Um, but it's really going to be the Warren Court that kicks this into very high gear. I know Eddie has some thoughts on a particular Warren Court case that, that we were talking about backstage right. uh, that he might want to tell you about. Right, 1962, Engel versus Vitali. That's where Stephen Engel, a parent in New Hyde Park, New York, and a group of other parents objected to the recitation of a state-drafted prayer, school prayer, even though it was voluntary. Uh, at the start of each school day. The prayer was non-denominational, but was written by the State Board of Regents. Goes to the Supreme Court and, Eddie, would you like to talk about it at all? Sure, uh, I, I think though, I wanna do a couple of things. And, and that is add a few footnotes to this wonderful history that Akil just laid out. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking about um, um, the, 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 the Constitution of the Carolinas in 1669, and John Locke was at the heart of it, right, who helped write it, right? And it's important because I think it's important that we pan out, that we don't just simply narrow it to the U.S. context, right? Because Locke is giving, is giving expression to a notion of, re of religious liberty at the same time that Locke is offering a justification for imperial gestures at the same time, right? A kind of empire, uh, um, uh, imperial effort. And there's this move that he makes, right, that the states should not be involved in religion because religion is a matter of conscience. Right? So even as we talk about um, uh, uh, Baptist and Methodist in particular in the context of the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, holding anti-slavery positions, we see a kind of discursive frame that could allow, that, have, that will allow a distinction between holding Christian commitments and mm -hmm. still being able to hold slaves. <laughs> Right? So there is a move that's being made in the context of antebellum America by Christians and want to be very, very clear. Uh, and one of the strongholds of art making this argument was Princeton Theological Seminary, right? Trying to reconcile slavery with holding Christian commitments, right? Because they see that slaves or the enslaved, some of them are kind of witty and smart. They, they see that if they convert to Christianity, they cause a kind of contradiction in practice, right? How do you hold Christians slaves, right? How do you hold, how do you treat Native Americans who have converted to Christianity in the way that you do? And so then you see in Locke and others, right, this move, uh, intellectual move, to kind of re to reduce Christianity, not reduce it, but to think of Christianity as a matter of conscience, which allows one to hold Christian slaves, right? So I want to suggest that there is not just simply those who are, who are abolitionists who are saying that it's irreconcilable mm -hmm. to have the institution of slavery and to hold Christian commitments. There are those among them, people like Locke who write, who wrote, um, it's earlier of course than the abolitionist movement, but who make this distinction that allow folk to hold these commitments and to hold people uh, mm -hmm. as chattel. So that's the first kind of argument. Now I've lost my, my train of thought with regards to <laughs> angle. angle. So how do we get to this moment? So I, 
No, I, now I see where I was going. Uh, <coughs> so there, there, there's that early moment, and then there's, there, there, there's you know, Tisa Winger, who wrote a wonderful book entitled Religious Freedom, the Conflicted History uh, of an American Idea, suggests that we ought to think about religious freedom in the context of America's racial history and America's imperial history. And she tells a story about the concept of religious freedom from the period of the Spanish-American War in 1898 up to the end of World War II, right? And part of what she's doing, I'm getting to 1962, I'm getting to 1962. Part of what she's trying to suggest is that the notion of religious freedom is actually being deployed in the context of the U.S.'s encounter with other peoples Mm -hmm. as a way to define the superiority of white Protestantism. That white Protestantism gets linked to the notion of being, of freedom itself, right? And this is being articulated in the context of the incorporation of all of these darker peoples around the globe. So at the moment, for example, Jim Crow is being consolidated in the South. America is bringing all of these black people or brown people under its rule, whether it's in Cuba, whether it's in the Philippines and the like. And what we see is not only the kind of insistence on a particular notion of Protestantism and its linkage to freedom, we see these brown people using the idea of religious freedom in order to articulate its relate their relationship to the U.S. nation state. Right? So that's really important. Now, trying to get to Vitaly. Part of what happens, to my mind, in in, in Hendricks um, is this collision of these various folk who make their way to the United States as a result of the disruption uh, of of World War II. Immigration begins to have an impact. Uh, There is this concern about the role of religion in public life, and particularly in public schools. There is this concern about these Catholics. There is this concern about these Jews. And what's interesting about Henrix is that this all comes to a head with this so-called non-descriptive prayer, right? Where folks are being asked to pray in such a way that really runs into conflict with how they see themselves, and particularly the Roths and others, right? And so there's a challenge here through the language of religious freedom and religious liberty that this is in some ways uh, over, this contradicts the kind of constitutional principle. Um, And and part of the argument, (coughs) as I see it, is that folks are making an argument in this context, not only to respond to a certain kind of anti-Catholicism, but they're making an argument for a certain kind of Americanness, right, by way of this appeal. Um, and it unleashes all of this horrific behavior. The courts sign off. You can talk about this more than I do. The courts actually agree that this is unconstitutional, and what it unleashes is a kind of ugliness that is rooted in American nativism, that's rooted in American anti-Semitism, that then all gets lodged in this discourse around American around prayer in schools. And I think this is important for us to understand this within the context of a particular and long-standing articulation of American whiteness as bound up with a certain kind of Protestant vision of who we are. Now, there's a kind of linkage with that will kind of happen um, with um, Catholic parochial schools mm. and funding of Catholic <coughs> parochial schools that we might want to talk about. But right. that's a long-winded version. So I'm not going to say anything else for the rest <laughs> until we get to Bill Barr's speech. Okay, so, so, so. okay that, that sounds good. But, but I have to... <laughs> 
I have to bring you to the end of Engel versus <laughs> Vidali, okay? Um, it did get to the Supreme Court, and uh, keep this in mind, the decision by the court was six to one to strike down the, uh, the school prayer law. Um, Six to one, two justices did not participate. It was written by, the opinion was written by Justice Hugo Black, and he said, in this country, it is no part of the business of government to compose official prayer for any group of the American people. Mm -hmm. Now, that's sort of the, the, the old concept of the wall between church and state. Right. Justice Douglas wrote a concurring opinion, and he took a broader view of the Establishment Clause, saying any type of public promotion of religion, including giving financial aid to religious schools, violates the Establishment Clause. We're still fighting over these things. Right. Potter Stewart, he dissented. He was the one dissent. And he said the Establishment Clause meant only to prohibit establishment of a state-sponsored church, for example, the Church of England, not all types of government involvement with religion. So that's the Warren Court, 6-1, 1962. We're going to jump 30 years to uh, 1992 and Lee versus Weissman, which was the first major school prayer case decided by the Rehnquist Court. The winds of change are coming. Two Rehnquist, uh, excuse me, two Reagan-appointed judges, both Catholic, um, both Harvard Law School graduates, uh, Anthony Kennedy and uh, Antonin Scalia, um, and uh, and they divide. Justice Kennedy uh, joins the, the so-called liberal wing of the court, and Justice Scalia writes an over-the-top <laughs> dissent. Uh, the facts of the case are, um, uh, it's a commencement service, uh, a graduation at a middle school. This, uh, the school has invited, uh, has a policy of inviting local clergymen to give um, uh, an opening uh, prayer. Um, uh, and uh, and Justice Kennedy, uh, writing for the court, says this is unconstitutional. Now, why does he say that? Um, he says, well, here are three things that you need to understand about what's going on um, in uh, this Rhode Island um, school system. One, um, as a practical matter, people have to come to their graduations. And Scalia says, no one's forcing you to go to your graduation. <laughs> and from a certain narrow, legal, formalistic point of view, that's true. And, and Kennedy, in effect, says to his friend, Justice Scalia, get real. Because um, it, it, you'd be missing out on something pretty special if you and your family you know, didn't go uh, to this event. And it's not so easy to absent yourself from the first three minutes and then show up. It's very carefully choreographed, so you can't do that very easily. Um, um, and uh, uh, so, uh, um, and we have special concern, Justice Kenny says, about schools and coercion. Opt-outs don't really quite work so easily. So. Um, let's, let me just take a step back. I don't know if Mrs. Newdow is here in the audience. Last time I was here, Michael Newdow's mother um, uh, introduced herself. But let me just take you one step back to some cases from the um, 
the 1940s about um, the Pledge of Allegiance, which was uh, um, imposed on um, uh, students and Jehovah's Witnesses wanted to opt out. And the court initially, in a case called Gobaida, says, no, you've got to show up. And then later, um, in a case called Barnett, the court reverses itself and says, actually, um, the government can't force you um, to uh, participate in the Pledge of Allegiance. You can opt out. Okay, But, but now... Um, with Engel versus Vitali, even an opt-out isn't quite good enough, right. you see. Right. Um, an opt-out isn't good enough because as you stand up, um, um, uh, apart from the others, you're standing out, you're going to be targets of, of mockery and, and ridicule and, 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 and the rest. What's the difference between the Pledge of Allegiance and this thing? Pledge of Allegiance isn't a prayer. It says, you know, one nation under God, but so did Lincoln at Gettysburg. And so it's not quite a prayer. Um, whereas this Regents thing is a government prayer that they're composing. Why these, um, uh, so that makes it different. Okay, so Kennedy in Lee versus Weissman says, this is a prayer. Um, and it's being prayed by a, a rabbi and people have to show up and they can't easily opt out. And we have special concern about coercion in high schools because of, of peer pressure and the like. And here's the final thing that really bothers Justice Kennedy. Because if you believe, as I do, that Lee versus Weissman is rightly decided and so is Engel versus Vitali, you might believe that as a religious person. You don't want government in the prayer writing business. You don't want government deciding, you know, um, because the, the prayer that they write might be very different than your deeply held religious views. Um, and uh, um, so, so um, Kennedy says the government is actually telling the rabbi, even before he's opened his mouth, what he can pray and can't pray. It can't be too denominational. He actually invokes, in effect, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord um, uh, require of you, O oh man, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, he doesn't quite quote Micah 6.8 just that way, but if you actually know your Old Testament, you can hear in his um, um, remarks, that's Micah 6.8. So, but if, but if a Protestant preacher had actually said Jesus, that would have violated the school board's rule. So they actually are giving directions to the clergy about what you can't say. You can't say Jesus. You can say God. You can say justice, but you can't say um, um, uh, something else. So Trinity, oh, government shouldn't be in that business um, so I'm with Kenny on that. I want to say one more thing about Hugo Black uh, in oh, Engel, um, um, uh, since uh, we mentioned, because he's also um, uh, on the correct side in um, um, uh, Bar Barnett, um, which um, says over Justice Frankfurter's dissent that um, uh, government can't impose a pledge on unwilling folk. Um, Hugo Black was a member of the Klan. He denied this during his confirmation hearings. Yes, that sometimes happens in confirmation hearings. People aren't always totally, you know, Elena Kagan, of course, is forthcoming, but, no, you know, but other folks, you know. Um, um, uh, so the Klan, you might think, is 
basically a racial group. And you can't get elected senator of Alabama back then without being a member of the Klan. Um, and, and, but, uh, so you might think it's a racist group. It's also a nativist group. They don't like immigrants, since mm-hmm. you mentioned the immigrant experience. And they're also very religiously bigoted. They don't like Jews. They don't like Catholics. Catholics. You know, So they're native, white, Protestants, connecting to Eddie's story about how these things connect. That's who Hugo Black is. And yet, and yet, and yet, he actually sides with all these religious outsider groups, Jehovah's Witnesses in the Barnett case, um, um, uh, other religious outsiders in Engel versus Vitale and um, okay, Abington versus Shemp yeah. and others. So, so, um, uh, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And that's going to lead to Anthony Kennedy saying, if you take all that seriously, government really shouldn't be in the prayer writing business or even in the prayer directing, prayer scripting business. Yes, they didn't write this prayer, but they told the rabbi what prayer to write and what prayer not to write. That's not good business. All hell breaks loose. Yes. Right? Because they were supposed to win with Rehnquist. They were supposed to win this case, right? right? They being the religious right. Right, exactly. And there still is this enormous desire and push to uh, have government involved in religion or uh, government sanction religion. Is there any consistent, really, approach by the Supreme Court to the cases that come? You have Ten Commandment monuments, a monument uh, on uh, State Capitol grounds that's surrounded by other monuments is okay, but a monument inside a courthouse is not okay. You have someone like Justice Breyer saying, you know, well, you know, it's, it's sort of like, well, I can tell if I see it, if it's constitutional or not. And so it's, but there still is this, this enormous desire among certain groups, religious groups and others to, uh, you know, have these things, school prayer, uh, school uh, fund, religious uh, school funding, uh, and it, these cases continue to come. So we go from uh, the Lee versus Wiseman was a 5-4 decision in 1992, and we come up to the current Roberts Court. Uh, I was telling Eddie and Akil that a few years ago I was interviewing a justice <coughs> who raised some concerns that the free exercise clause of the First Amendment was now becoming a, a tool by certain group, religious groups to discriminate. Uh, and this was something, you know, we, this justice was, was beginning to see a while ago. And... Now we're seeing cases come to the Supreme Court that involve, for example, you might recall Masterpiece Cake Shop, where a baker does not want to serve uh, a gay couple because it's a uh, same-sex marriage is against uh, his religious beliefs. Um, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church was recently, and there the Supreme Court said uh, that um, uh, a church... Had to, was it was discrimination against the church not to allow it to participate in a <coughs> fund for rebuilding uh, school playgrounds with uh, uh, recycled tires, uh, and uh, so we're 
and then we have Hobby Lobby, which is another case that involves religious beliefs of closely held corporations. So what what is your sense of, of, of what's happening here, not just with the Supreme Court, but what's happening you know, at large in society? And Eddie, this too is when we can bring in old Bill Barr's speech. Oh, absolutely. So um, if you want to start with the law, okay. and then we'll go to Eddie okay, on sure. Bill Barr. So two different things. And by the way, I think I may have misspoke when I told you that uh, the ninth, those, uh, World War II cases, Gobitis and West Virginia versus Barnett, where when the Supreme Court overrules Gobitis, they, they may not have been Pledge of Allegiance cases. They were flag salute cases. But I, I'm, you know, when, when I was a kid, when we, when we um, uh, um, did the flag salute, we also did, did the pledge um, uh, simultaneously. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Um, and the, by the way, the salute in one of those cases was not the hand over the heart salute. It was actually uh, something that looked rather um, fascistic and, and Naziistic. It was it was this kind of Roman um, uh, salute, um, and I think that did affect the optics in the 1940s. <laughs> where, you know, um, <clears throat> well, Eddie is talking about how you have to understand American law in uh, against the backdrop of larger um, imperialistic and foreign. Your colleague's uh, um, beautiful book about this, right? Policy concerns right. Um, um, on, on Hitler's. And, and oh, Jim Whitman yeah. um, on on uh, America's uh, Hitler's American model, because um, uh, um, Hitler is getting. Uh, certain ideas for the Nuremberg blood uh, codes from American segregation law Mm -hmm. in the South. Okay, here are two distinctions. One, we've got the free exercise clause and the non-establishment clause. And some people think there's this deep tension between them, almost a contradiction. You have to protect religion, but not free exercise, but not too much the establishment. So is there tension there? And remember at the founding, they're not so much focused on that because they don't have a coherent idea of church and state. They just say, Congress butt out, leave it to local option, let them you know, fight it out. And some states have established churches and some don't. Um, and uh, so, so maybe they didn't coherently think about the relationship between free exercise and non-establishment. Founding. So there's, there's that tension. And then there's a tension between two big ideas. Um, and I'm going to come down on one side on, on this. One is the idea of separation and separation of church and state and a wall of separation of church and state. And, there's, and I think that's the wrong way to think about things. I think the right way to think about things is um, equality um, and thinking about religious equality as not so different from racial equality and gender equality and sexual orientation equality. Um, and uh, so... Um, and, and it's going to matter which which uh, frame you you pick. Um, so, um, if you have to pick between free exercise and non-establishment, I say pick free exercise, because the Soviet Union has no free exercise and no establishment of religion, and it's not a good place. England has free exercise and an established church, and if I have a choice between England and the Soviet Union, I pick England, okay? So if you have to pick one or the other, I say actually pick free exercise, because free exercise has within it certain limits, because actually government, it it has a deep, and now I come to the second idea, equality idea. It's religious freedom and equality, and that just as there shouldn't be a favored race in America, 
Brown versus Board of Education. There shouldn't be a favored religion in America. And the problem in Engel versus Vitale is they're coming up with their government prayer, or in Lee versus Weissman, they're deciding who can pray and in which ways. And you have a Bible reading. Fine. First of all, which version of the Bible are you going to use? Are you going to use the Douay Catholic Bible with the Apocrypha or the King James Bible? You know, which translation are you going to use? Oh, them's fighting words on Sunday and lots of different congregations around the mirror. And why the Bible? You know, because there are many other um, scriptural books and religious traditions and non-religious traditions. Why not Quran or Bhagavad Gita or, or um, um, many other things? So, um, Religious free exercise has within it a certain idea that there shouldn't be a favored religion or a disfavored religion. Now, what does that mean? Um, because I, I don't quite agree with um, uh, Douglas. Um, he was a Yale Sterling professor um, at Yale Law School. Um, but, but, but don't trust these Yale people. And Potter Stewart, oh, he was another Yale guy. Idiot, you know, in, in, in Engel versus Vitalik. Because here's the key idea. As I said, it's equality. So should government money ever, ever, ever find its way to a religion? And if you're a strict separationist, you think, no, never. Oh, well, does that mean that if the, I'm a government employee and they, um, or I get a social security check from the government and I endorse it and drop it in the collection plate on Sunday, oh, that's government money and it's just found its way into a church that violates separation. No, you know, that was my choice as an individual. The government paid me. And what's true of a social security check or an employment check if I'm a government worker is true of dollar bills with um, George Washington's picture on them. They come from Caesar. You know, but, but the idea that I can never use money to donate to a church or to give a church, that's what you get with super strict separation thinking, which is, I think, a mistake. So, vouchers, and then Eddie's going to tell you about Bill Barr. If actually, and here's what the Supreme Court is saying, it's moved away from separation, which was the wrong way of thinking about things, to equality, which is basically the right way of thinking about things. So um, can um, a parochial school ever get government funds? That's the voucher debate. And my answer is yes, it can if it's getting that voucher on exactly the same terms as a private school that's not religious, okay? So um, the government doesn't ask or doesn't care whether you have a prayer. It just asks whether you teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if you do, maybe you're eligible for a voucher plan. Um, um, so think about accreditation. You get, your school gets to be accredited if you teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. And you get accredited whether you have a prayer at the end of the day or not, whether you teach religion pervasively or not. As long as you teach you know, to the test, reading, writing, arithmetic, you get your accreditation. And if a voucher plan, and this is where the Supreme Court is today, is genuinely open without regard to um, whether you're a parochial school or a private um, um, atheist academy, that's equal. But the problem with separationist thought, and, 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 this is, and this is what Justice Stevens used to think, he's no longer with us, he's no longer on the court, or, um, but he, his view and Justice Studer's view was, the, the, in effect, the following. Ah, you're eligible for the voucher if you're a private atheist academy. 
But the minute that private atheist academy adds a prayer at the beginning or end of the school day, it loses its eligibility for a voucher because actually separation is violated. And oh my God, that's a tax on religion, don't you see? As, you know, as obvious as, as two plus two equals four, you can't treat the school that perfectly qualified for the voucher on, 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 on Monday differently because on Monday night they add a prayer and now they're unable to, they have the exact same curriculum in every other respect except they add a prayer, they can't now be ineligible for that voucher. Not only does that, giving them the voucher, that does not violate a non-establishing clause, actually to do otherwise would be to violate the free exercise principle, you see, because the idea is not separate, but equal. Let me ask a question. (laughs) So the equality move, right? How does it hold up when a particular uh, uh, set of commitments claim to be the truth of the matter. So uh, it's one thing to say that we should be treated equally, that that, um, um, whiteness doesn't accord you any advantage and blackness should not accord you any disadvantage based upon an equality principle in the way in which we live our lives. And there are some people who hold the view that because I'm white, I'm superior, and that should evidence itself in social, political, and economic arrangements. We hold, uh, uh, we have laws that, at least on the book, suggest that that particular commitment will not evidence itself in our arrangements. In the laws. In the laws themselves. But they could very well evidence themselves in a number of different ways, right? So, but, but what do we do when someone holds that Judeo-Christianity is the truth, mm-hmm. and our very idea of freedom that is voiced, that was voiced by the founders presuppose as a set of background agreements that particular vision of the world as such, whether it be the particular practices of Judeo-Christianity, or whether it's a particular Catholic understanding of natural law, right? That the very, that the very ideas, uh, that the very ideas that inform the founding presuppose a set of religious commitments that are true, right? And Islam isn't, Buddhism isn't, Baha'ism isn't, Judaism isn't. So how does the equality principle, as you invoke it, respond to that reality? Because behind Bill Barr's claim... They haven't heard about Bill Barr yet. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think we're getting to Bill Barr. Tell them about Bill Barr. Go ahead. Okay, all right. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the the background so people know what... He gave a speech very recently at Notre Dame, and uh, it was, you know... Quite quite a speech, and and I'll just give you a little quick synopsis of some of the things he said. He said, "I think we all recognize that over the past 50 years, religion has been under increasing attack. On the one hand, we have seen the steady erosion of our traditional Judeo-Christian moral system and a comprehensive effort to drive it from the public square." On the other hand, we see the growing ascendancy of secularism and the doctrine of moral relativism. By any honest assessment, the consequences of this moral upheaval have been grim. 
first is the force, fervor, and comprehensiveness of the assault on religion we are experiencing today. This is not decay. It is organized destruction. Secularists and their allies among the progressives have marshaled all the force of mass communications, popular culture, the entertainment industry, and academia in an unremitting assault on religion and traditional values. These instruments are used not only to affirmatively promote secular orthodoxy, but also drown out and silence opposing voices and to attack viciously and hold up to ridicule any dissenters. One of the ironies, as some have observed, is that the secular project has itself become a religion, pursued with religious fervor. It is taking on all the trappings of a religion, including inquisitions and excommunication. This is the Attorney General of the United States. And what's so fascinating about this speech is that he frames it by way of reading right the religious um, the religious backdrop to the thinking of the founders that the great experiment of american democracy presupposed right a, a set of commitments that were rooted in judeo christian uh, practice or tradition that is to say it we could engage in this great experiment because of a, of a set a moral frame that would restrain our passions Right? And with the collapse of that worldview, with its fracture, with this fracture, right, we are then subject to our passions and the very assumptions that, that informed the founding have been tossed aside. I mean, we, if those of you who read <coughs> philosophy, you could see this and say Alistair McIntyre's work after virtue and others, another Catholic thinker coming out of Notre Dame and the like. So, so there's a sense, going back to my question. Yeah. There's a sense in which the equality principle runs up against this claim. Right. So, what, how do you respond to that? So, um, let me and try that- to offer um, some truces and compromises in, in the culture <laughs> war, some middle ground, um, because my watchwords really are equality and neutrality. And it's not secularism um, across the board for its own sake. It's not this assault on religion. So. I'm giving you an account of why religious people shouldn't want prayer in the schools, shouldn't want prayer in commencement. And see, that's um, something that Barr's audience can understand. Oh, this is not an attack on your religion or anyone's, actually. In the name of, of religion, government should st- stay out of this business, don't you see? Ah, well, they say, but now my taxpayer dollars are being given to um, public schools um, and, and in which God is excluded. Um, and if I want to go to private school, I have to you know, pay for it myself or something. Well, let's talk about the pay for yourself. But, but God isn't excluded um, uh, from public schools. People on their own are allowed to pray. I, I, I used to pray before every test. <laughs> They're allowed to. We don't stamp that out. Um, here's what I actually do think on neutrality, and the Supreme Court blew it in a case called Wallace versus Jaffrey. Mm-hmm. Um, Wallace versus Jaffrey was um, a state-organized moment of silence. It wasn't a prayer, it was just you know, a moment of silence. And what I loved about the moment of silence, don't you see, is it's totally neutral. You can pray if you like. You can think about baseball 
if you like. You can actually, and when, you know, or, or, or when I was very young, I, you, 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 can, you can think heretical thoughts if you like, you know, in that moment of silence. Um, and, but it's a signal to those uh, communities of faith that the school is not meant to be hostile to religion, only equal and neutral. So that's actually a truce in the culture wars. If you have, um, um, uh, uh, let's say, a, a voucher plan, that's why it's so important to respond to the Bill Barr critique. No, the religious school is not being treated any better or worse than the school right across the street that teaches the same basic things, reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, that one of them has a prayer as part of its curriculum and one of them doesn't, and we, the government, treat those two the same. Individuals are allowed to be as un, you know, at, to, to have all sorts of partial commitments. I'm a Christian. I'm a Jew. I'm um, a Muslim. The government. So you're allowed to think that yours is the only truth, and everyone else is 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 going to go to um, our eternal flame. Mm -hmm. But the government can't take that position. The government has to try to achieve a certain um, neutrality, um, a stance of neutrality and equality toward all. Believers and non-believers. So what's say. fascinating about the Barr speech at Notre Dame is that he says there are certain things that follow from um, the collapse, that there's an attack. And what happens is that he returns to the issue of school prayer, right? That these secularists right, want to keep, school, keep prayer out of school. And the first thing I would tell my friends at Notre Dame is... If we have a school prayer, the prayer that we're going to have is from the King James Bible. So think about that, my friends at Notre Dame. So that's just how it's going to be. Is that what you want and your taxpayer money say, going to? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> and then how? How? Because because well, math. You know, there are this many Catholics, and there are a lot more Protestants, and it's not going to be your prayer, my friends. Right, so okay, I'm um, just trying to figure it and out. This right? is just what James Madison and others actually said at the founding. Actually, that. That um, there would be a support for certain religious um, um, freedom because there were going to be lots of different sects, um, and uh, every sect was going to be worried that the others would gang up on it. And so the truce, actually, among different communities of faith is let's keep the government out of this business. The government shouldn't be identifying um, which of, uh, of our faiths is, is the true one, just as it shouldn't be saying you're the favored race and you're the disfavored So race. this is really, going back to my opening remarks, a kind of example of the two tendencies or the two currents. One is the kind of emphasis on religious pluralism, which what I hear coming from you, mm -hmm. right, that you have all of these very these varied expressions of what it means to define oneself as religious, right? Because we need to understand that this category of religion that we've been invoking carries with it, right? This Protestant imprimatur that we keep thinking about religion in the form and shape of Protestantism. And as we name what is religion and what isn't religion, which the court has been involved in doing in, in for a while. It's unavoidable. It's yeah. unavoidable that we find ourselves in this kind of odd place, right? Of defining what is and what isn't. So, so you have that pluralist view, and then you have this holy commonwealth view. And what is this holy commonwealth view? And that is that the United States is a Judeo-Christian nation, right. and that those commitments ought to be evidenced right. in our arrangements. And that's what I was saying from the beginning was in effect rejected when we didn't say God in the Constitution, when we said no um, religious tests for, for, for um, um, uh, public um, uh, federal office, 
and a Congress shall make no law that was no, no, no to that um, commonwealth. As individuals can have religion, governments can't. Just as individuals can choose to say, oh, I'm only going to date Christians or I'm only going to date um, Asian Americans or something. I get to do that. I can, I'm only going to date women. I get to do that as an individual. Government can't say, oh, we're going to set up schools only for men, schools only for um, uh, whites, um, schools only for Christians. Government be, can't do that. Individuals can. That's a fascinating move. I'm just trying to figure out how someone who holds the view that their position is the truth mm-hmm. yeah. would concede to that frame. Yeah, but if we, it's a big world and there are other people who disagree and we all have to get along. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, you know, the strange thing, Akil, is that the history of the world suggests otherwise. Yeah. And, and the history of this country is exceptional because we're actually trying to say, which is, you know, that unlike England, we don't have actually um, uh, a government church. And, and unlike the Soviet Union, we actually don't have official atheism either. Um, and of all the countries in the world, we're the one that more than any other um, has the great-grandchildren of all the other um, uh, ethnicities and faiths more represented here. Um, and we don't have as much of the, the burqa problem um, and, the, and, and the veil problem as, as, for example, France does. France has a principle of laicite, laicite. It has an official policy of secularism. And Bill Barr can rail against the French, but actually that's not, America's policy isn't quite that. America's is not secularism, but more, in in France, no public officer should, no one seeking public office should ever mention religion at all. Bill Barr's speech would be unconstitutional in France because it's it's too much a profession of religious faith. In France, presidents in their inaugural um, uh, um, oaths should never add, because it's not in the Constitution, but they've added for more than a century the words they've chosen to, so help me God. George Washington swore his oath of office in this city um, on a Bible. That was his choice. He doesn't, didn't have to do that. In England, you have to swear on a, not just any old Bible, but a King James Bible, and it has to be an archbishop who administers the oath. Um, but in America, none of that, the personal choice, but you're allowed to be religious and to be in public life. In France, actually, there is a ruthless hostility to any expressions of religion and religiosity in public life. It's a deep commitment of their constitution, secularism, or it's called laicity. It's a strong anti-clergy tradition. Very interesting. Uh, Just for your information, uh, there was a fascinating study released recently by the Pew Center, which periodically takes a look at the religious landscape in the United States. And they uh, reported that it's changing at a rapid clip. Uh, They found that... um, 65 in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults described themselves as Christians when asked about their religion. And that was down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, those who are religiously unaffiliated in the population uh, who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26% up from 17% in 2009. Mm-hmm. And both Protestantism and Catholicism are experiencing losses of population share. 
So it's really uh, quite an interesting changing landscape. We've always said that the European story around secularization does not apply to the United States, right? Right. Um, and so in the field of the sociology of religion or in religious studies, right, there's been this kind of resistance to analogizing what happened or the role of religion in American life uh, to, to, to Europe. And in some ways, the French example is, it, it, it gives us a sense of that, of mm -hmm. the stark difference between mm -hmm. the two. But what we do know, secularization is a religious term. Yeah. <laughs> It only makes sense in relation to the right. category of religion. But what we're seeing is a, a shift in the landscape, and that shift in the landscape, just as the shift in the demographics, is creating right, um, all sorts of anxieties. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we're experiencing is the oversized voice of a particular sliver of the American religious landscape. Yes. Barr represents that right. in the context of conservative Catholicism, but we also see it in oversized influence of white evangelicalism. Right. Let's be very clear, the adjective matters there, that white evangelicals is a particular iteration of evangelical Protestantism that we need to wrap our minds around. And just on that, just since we have to mention him here, just uh, if, if I say to most of you, free association, um, think of the words that come to mind when I say Martin Luther King, you're gonna say civil rights leader. But if you asked Martin Luther King who he was, he would not have described himself as a civil rights leader. That's how the textbooks describe him. He would have said, I'm a preacher of the gospel, first, last, always. Everything comes out of that. But that's just a reminder that in our lifetime, you're allowed in America, not so much in France, to be advocating for all sorts of public issues and to do so as a person of faith on behalf of communities of, of faith. Their argument, building on the abolitionists of the 1830s and 40s and 50s, is our system is evil, it's wrong, it's not Christian. Um, and, and, and they weren't afraid to actually um, speak in a religious register even while also advocating for political reform. Since you said the adjective matters on white evangelical and his letter from a Birmingham jail and other things, these are letters to his fellow um, um, uh, ministers of the gospel who are white and who are disappointing him and in so all I, these letters. And whenever, we, whenever I hear someone invo invoke King in that way, I say be careful because Jerry Falwell can yes, do the same exactly. thing. Exactly. Right? right? So then we have to have an argument right. on Christian grounds about who's right. Yes. Right? In yes. this regard, right? Yeah. So what does it mean to sacralize one's politics by invoking God's relevance to right. whether or not we should be equal right. or not? Right. Raises a whole host of questions right. that we need to be careful around because once we sacralize politics, we get ourselves into a whole lot of trouble, right? Because we insulate the politics from a certain sort of criticism because I'm representing the Correct. truth in that moment, whether I'm being prophetic progressively or prophetic from a conservative vantage point, right? And we, and we should mention, there are many great books on this, and you've written yeah. some, but all, my friend Steve Carter oh, has absolutely. written a really great one that you might be interested yeah, in. Yeah, and, and I disagree with Steve the, the, the wholeheartedly. The, the, the culture of disbelief. That, <laughs> that you're hearing with, some of Steve Carter in what yeah, I've been saying. I, I disagree with him. Well, we can get into that later. But, but I, think, I, think it's really, I think it's really fascinating 
fascinating. The Pew study is really fascinating because it brings something to the fore for us. And I know we got a whole bunch of questions here. It brings something to the fore for us that this discussion around religious freedom, how it's invoked, and particularly in Barr's case, it reflects a whole set of anxieties about who do we take ourselves to be as Americans. Right. I began by saying that this, 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 this ideal of religious freedom carries with it part of the undertow of it is a particular understanding of who we are as Americans. We've had folk invoke it as a way to argue for inclusion, and we've had right. folk Martin to King. invoke it to argue for exclusion. Right. Right. Right? right, And so we have to begin to interrogate the various ways in which that ideal can generate both of those tendencies and currents. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, well, we do have some questions. And they're all to him. <laughs> they're actually all, no, there's one on lock. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, Say on toleration. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, how does the, se- this is a sort of very contemporary question, how does the separation of church and state play into rumblings in the current administration to allow agencies with federal funds to discriminate against LGBTQ people? Okay, so um, just on the, the metaphor of separation of church and state, which is not in the Constitution, the wall of separation metaphor comes from a letter to the Danbury Baptist Church in 1802 from Thomas Jefferson. The court used to talk a lot about separation. It was a very prominent metaphor in the early Warren court. Court hasn't used that metaphor in 25 years. Okay, so that's very paleo, and uh, that's not <laughs> where the court um, is today. But um, it, is, it is. I mean, it's a good. Uh, he. I think he's, whoever wrote the question is referring to uh, sort of the what we're seeing now with the free exercise clause being used to discriminate. Uh, the Trump administration has oh, taken a number of steps recently. In fact, one was just struck down by a federal court um, to uh, sort of eliminate uh, funding for LGBTQ right. um, population. Certainly. Um, and it's invoked in the bar speech as well. Yes, it is. In yeah. terms of curriculum. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, we want the two big distinctions that, again, I all want you to sort of keep in mind are um, individuals who are allowed to actually have all sorts of com- um, religious commitments. That's why I can pray by myself in a school or have a little prayer group um, in a school. And the government, the government can't do certain things. The government can't do. Individuals can. And, and th- this is and. These are easy principles to articulate, then in the real world, actually applying them is messy on this. And the second is, is the government formally discriminating on religious grounds or is the distinction something else? So the government requires that any school that wants to be accredited um, teach math. That is not a religious law even if there's some religion out there that just doesn't believe in pie. <laughs> you, you know, thinks it's, it's 3.0 because it's simpler that way. Um, so we don't care. If that's what you think, you don't get accredited. And that's an easy question because we, the government, are not regulating. So on religious grounds, often you have to look not at what the individual says or thinks, but what the government policy is, and is it actually formally or not um, a religious policy? So you mentioned um, the um, 
uh, the baker in uh, Colorado. So, because what I'm telling you is I don't know enough about this LGBT reg. So I'm, 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 I'm shuffling and evading. That's okay. Although um, the baker is a good example. But, but the baker I do know about. So great. Everyone focuses on the baker who happens to have religious reasons for his bigotry. I don't care. I don't give a damn whether he has religious reasons or not. I'm with him in his constitutional claim, even though, oh, I'm against him very much on his belief about um, LGBT, okay? Here's what he's saying. Whether he's religious or not, he's saying, you, in effect, are forcing me to, to... I'll sell cakes to anyone, but wedding cakes are different. Wedding cakes actually have um, something of me in them. I'm, in effect, part of a certain ceremony. You're asking me, in effect, to decorate this cake as if I'm writing on um, the, um, the top of the cake, just like you might say, you know, happy birthday, Akil, you know, um, um, happy bar mitzvah, Irving. Um, 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 I, bigoted baker, do hereby endorse this same-sex marriage. And he says, and I don't, okay? Whether for religious reasons or not, I don't. And you're making me, actually, you're forcing me to affirm in a very personal way. I'm not Holiday Inn, I'm not McDonald's, I'm one guy. I'm a bigoted guy, but I'm entitled to be a bigoted guy. Um, That's what the government can't do, individuals (laughs) can. Oh, Akil, but what, what, okay, what if it's the case that he holds these commitments Yes. and he, but, but, uh, but he me, believes that divorce is wrong, but he's making a lot of damn cakes for people who are married in their third, 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 their third time. So he's being inconsistent in the application of his commitments. He is not the government, my friend. People are allowed to be batshit crazy. The government can't. People are allowed to think whatever so, the hell they want. So, so, okay? so, so how do you, how do you hold, how do you hold, how do you hold it's back? Cold. What is the barrier from keeping being that same person from treating me Hold on. in that way. It's called criminal law, tort law, property law. He is committing no wrong whatsoever when he simply says, leave me out of it. You want to dance at the wedding? You dance. I'm not going to snipe. Uh, I'm not going to get an AK-47 and, and start um, shooting at you, okay? But don't ask me to come. I don't want to come. I'm allowed to opt out. So, 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 this, so and the case that strongly supports his view I told you about already. It's the Barnett case. If, you know, government should not be in the business of coercing, actually, affirmations of belief, that I salute the flag, that I support this. Another case, um, and whether they have religious reasons or not, whether they're Jehovah's Witnesses or just ornery, um, they are allowed to actually have their views, and government can't compel affirmations of belief. One really important case in this line, uh, from uh, the Barnett case to the Baker case, is called, and we haven't mentioned it, Woolley versus Maynard. It's the live free or die case. Some of you know that that's the motto of New Hampshire. Um, there was this fellow, um, and it's on every New Hampshire license plate. And there's this ornery fellow, and he didn't like that, so he kept taping over on his license plate, not the number, but just the little motto at the bottom. (laughs) And New Hampshire prosecutes him. New Hampshire has an irony deficit, don't you see? They're, They're trying to put... 
this guy in prison <laughs> for living freely by saying, you can have your idea, but you can't make me your mouthpiece. That's and funny. the Supreme Court sides with him, and it's one of the great, and whether his views are religious or not, it doesn't matter, no compelled affirmation of belief. Now here's what I'll tell you about the baker. I will never buy a cake from his shop. <laughs> I will tell all my friends not to buy from his shop. I'm hoping that in five years, he will see his way to actually um, providing cakes for all my gay friends and, um, and, and put his heart into it. If I even, so, oh, I, so I, and there are many other bakers around, okay? Um, but if I force him to do this, by the way, when I'm not looking, what's to prevent him from spitting in the cake? Okay, just saying. So, you know, forcing individuals to, to affirm all the, the beliefs, that, 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 that all, the, all the rules that apply to the government, this is the road to serfdom. You so see? I wonder what happens, though, then to uh, the enforcement of neutral uh, anti-discrimination laws. I mean, the Baker's right. case involved Colorado's uh, public accommodations law. He's, so what happens to right. those laws if you can Good. I mean, so have, now we're getting at it, and I need to explain some really basic things so that we don't become Europe. Okay. I get it that anti-discrimination law applies against the government. I get it that it applies against big organizations that um, have monopoly power. But when you apply it to every individual, I just want you to see what that, what that means. That I can't, as a matter of public accommodation, I can't date only women, you see? Oh, my God, that I couldn't date only Christians or Asian Americans. So no, we can't have that. I am not Holiday Inn. Okay, and he's one little baker. And by the way, if we impo impose this on every little uh, person, and, and that's a um, uh, um, uh, person who opens uh, business to the public, why not to every customer? So now, not only is the baker not allowed to discriminate in this way or that way, but customers actually are obliged. So in my household, here's the, 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 the conversation. My son loves the chicken at Chick-fil-A. And I say, yes, but they're discriminatory. We're not going to go to Chick-fil-A. I mean, I'm entitled to, because I have my freedom too. I don't like their politics, so I'm not going to buy their chicken. And he says, yes, but the chicken is good. Okay, but you see, that's freedom. We, we, we go back and forth on this, but we are entitled to actually give our consumer dollars to organization, to a business that we like, or if not, there's, a, there's, there's McDonald's, there's Wendy's, there, there are 50 other things. Okay, so, so when we start treating every single individual as a public accommodation, that's a real problem, you see. Um, there are many other bait shops He's a small operation. Actually, anti-discrimination law, when it comes, but federal anti-discrimination law only applies to employers above a certain number, 50 or 15 in, in many states. Mom and pop shops are allowed just to hire um, their own relatives and the like. So I do think, as I said, one of the key distinctions is between rules for the government. That's what the Constitution is about. Very different than rules for individuals. The very thing the government cannot do, compose a prayer, I get to do, 
I can have my own prayer, you know, and pray, you know, quietly, you know, even in on school grounds, you know, in a moment of silence or elsewhere. So the rules that apply to the government should not be applied to individuals. That's that's a really key idea. The thing that I, I see the I see the claim, Akil. I just worry about uh, vulnerable populations. That is to say, people who are subject to, subject to a number of individuals who together hold noxious views, who then act individually, but it has a corporate effect. It does. Right? And I come out of a tradition where the ugliness of the position that you're yeah. holding, right, has evidenced itself yeah. in very clear, brutal yeah. ways. So we call them out. But when they are not committing any tort, you see, this is why there's this thing called law school. And we learn actually about property law but, and contract and law learned, and criminal and law. And what, and what, what, what has he lim- done? And what we've learned is the limits of that, right? Because one minute the law seems to be on our side, and the next minute we got Plessy. One minute we get Plessy versus Which Ferguson, is the, the government. next minute we get... We Which get, is the government. Right. The government, the government, there are limits on the government, but individuals are allowed to choose whom they want to marry and to be racially discriminatory in that. Individuals to together can do extraordinary harm. Well, he's one and guy. Seems he's one baker. So oh, he's not doing anything not, yet. When, and, when, I, and I when don't Jay Sucklow and all those folk who are fun, when all those folk who are found funding him. When all of those, I mean, you think that's one, think about the think about the apparatus behind those folks who are defending that baker. It's not just him. Those folks who are defending that baker are the same, some of them are the same people who hold the noxious views of Barr. And they don't, it's not just simply an assertion of their individual right to act on their religious commitments. They fundamentally believe that someone who loves someone of the same sex, they should not be here. Right, and we're winning that debate. Are we? Yes, we are. And I actually, you know, given since you asked, you know, I... I, Did I? I, I, (laughs) (laughs) So, precisely because now... um, uh, 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 people like my friend Evan Wolfson and I won the debate on same-sex marriage. The government can't actually restrict marriage. But I want everyone to agree with that. My strategy for that is actually to let them come to this realization, and they are going to be more likely to come to this realization if I don't try to jam things down their throat, if they don't make them martyrs, if I don't do things that get... Because if you're right, then Fox News is making a big mistake every day highlighting this, and they're not because they understand that they're getting votes, actually, by making this guy a martyr when actually just... Let, let him sell cakes to his little bigoted friends and go out of business. I'm just going to be, I'm going to be really polemical right now that there are a lot of people at the bottom of the Mississippi River because of that strategy. Okay. Let's take a, a question or two before we get out of here, okay? That was so, that was such an underhanded blow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's just, you see... It's a crime to put people at the bottom of the Mississippi River. It's not a crime to refuse to deal with someone you don't want to deal with. And if you don't, with all oh. due respect, understand that. You don't understand, in a word, law. <laughs> it, I, yes, you can applaud for that because that's actually logical. It's a crime to put people at the bottom of the Mississippi River. It's called murder. 
Yes, and a whole bunch of people were murdered. Yes. Because there was a group of folk, because there were a group of people who held a certain set of commitments, right. and they organized a society right. based upon the And I can't change their black so hearts. Part, part of what I'm trying to suggest, though, is that it's never just simply one person. It's rarely just simply this individual acting alone. Yeah. And so part of what I'm trying to get at is how do you, I get your position, how do we address the harm? We call them out publicly and in the spirit of love saying, my brother, you are doing something that really is mean and wrong. Oh, Akil, I wish, I wish I could do that. Okay, coming out of my tradition, brother, I can't lo love, oh Lord. <laughs> Hasn't been sufficient. Okay. Go ahead, um, I'm sorry. Is it true many of the founders were deists? Why, if it's true, why does the idea of the United States as a Christian nation persist in the 21st century? Um, so yes, many of them were deists. Um, and, uh, um, and, and, but deism can mean different things. Exactly. Many of them also thought uh, actually of God as not just a cl um, uh, the clockmaker of the universe who set up the rules and then just watched it uh, unwind. I think... George Washington thinks that the hand of God personally intervened to save him um, at uh, the, uh, Brooklyn and, and, and elsewhere. Right. Um, um, you won't see Washington talk about Jesus very much or Christ. Um, he often talks about providence. Um, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson basically thinks that Christ was a very good man, like Socrates, but not actually um, any um, a, a, a god on, on, on earth. He actually uh, takes... He gets two Bibles and a pair of scissors and a pot of glue, and he tries to <laughs> cut out all the, 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 the parts of the Bible that he thinks are too mystical and paste the rest together, and actually mm -hmm. he gave this to other folks. So, so um, the Constitution doesn't say God, and, it's, and it has a First Amendment, and it, and it says no religious tests. So why do some people think what they do? Because, you know, that's our world. They think lots of stuff. Well, I think on that note, we're going to say Sorry. thank you. And, and, and thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.